to take a minute to say hi and welcome to all of you joining us from Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you join us this morning. We're starting a new series today called Christianity Illustrated. And in case you haven't realized it before, I love beginning and starting new things. I don't do very well finishing or following through, but I'm really good at starting stuff. So I'm excited about starting a new series. And in this series, we're going to look at some of the stories that Jesus told Those stories are called parables. And if you were to read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would discover Jesus tells about 40 different parables. Now, you may ask the question, well, why in the world would Jesus tell stories like that? Well, because he's really, really smart. And he knows that we remember stories. We remember characters, we remember context, and we remember storylines. And so he tells stories to help us remember In fact, it's kind of interesting. In Greek, the word parable is a compound word, and it means to throw alongside. And in a sense, here's what Jesus did. Jesus would take a normal occurrence from life, something that people would normally see, expect to see, or wouldn't be shocked to see, but then he throws next to that normal occurrence a spiritual truth, a gospel reality, so that then when people are reminded of that occurrence or see something like that, they're reminded of the spiritual reality, the spiritual truth, and it can be more deeply cemented into our heads and our hearts. Well, since we're starting a series on parables today, I thought we'd start with a little bit of a primer, all right? A little bit of an introduction to how parables work. And so I would encourage you, read some parables over the next few weeks and apply these principles. If you don't apply these principles, you may wind up having the parables say things that were never intended. So let's work on these principles and you can test us each week as we go through whether we're applying them or not. First of all, parables are not fables. How many of you ever read in elementary school or have ever reflected on an Aesop's fable? Raise your hand, okay. Parables are not fables. In fables, lots of weird stuff happens. Usually animals are talking in most fables. Most of Aesop's fables have animals talk, the tortoise and the hare. They're kind of talking to each other and coming up with this big thing about having a race together. Parables are not fables. Fables are not true to life. Weird occurrences with animals taking on human characteristics. You don't see that in Jesus' parables. In Jesus' parables, they're true to life. Not true in that they really happen, but they're true to life in that they may happen or could happen. It's a normal occurrence with the truth thrown next to it. But parables are also not allegories. In an allegory, all of the details of the story connect to a detail or a situation in life. So for example, if any of you are Chronicles of Narnia readers, then they are allegories. There are lots and lots of details that correspond to details in life. Parables aren't like that. If you try to tie every little detail of a parable to something in life, you're going to have lots of weird stuff coming out of the parable. Some people say a parable has one truth. That's probably saying a little too much. They may have more than one. But every detail of the parable can't be translated and correlated to something in life. They don't work like that. They're making one or two, maybe three points, but not a large number of points of correlation. That first one, they're not fables. They're not allegories. Don't read them that way. Secondly, Parables are intended to reveal and conceal. Now, you may think, because of what I said earlier, that parables are meant to reveal, and they let us in on the secrets of the kingdom, 
and things that, you know, you look behind the door and oh, all these really cool things show up. Yeah, but they're not just meant to reveal. Parables also conceal. So for example, after Jesus tells the parable of the different soils in Matthew 13, his disciples say to him, Jesus, so why do you talk in parables? And Jesus answers by saying this, so that in hearing, you will not hear. In seeing, you will not see. In hearing, you will not understand. So parables reveal, but they also conceal. And here's the, here's, here's the key. If you refuse to take the courageous step of reading yourself into the parable, the parable will conceal and it'll be kept at arm's length. It'll be distant and it'll be a cool story that you just kind of bounce around in your head, but it will not be very revealing. But if you take the courageous step to read yourself into the parable and you take the storyline and say, now what character best represents me? Am I responding like the character in the parable? All of a sudden, the parable reveals not just a truth about the kingdom, not just the truth about the gospel or Jesus, but the truth and the reality about us, the truth and reality about you. Thirdly, you can put parables into different categories. And depending on who you read, you can read this uh, commentator, this author on parables, no, this category and that category. Probably my favorite categorization comes from Jim Boyce. Jim used to be the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church down in Philadelphia. And at the beginning of his book on parables, he kind of puts them into different sections. So here are the basic category, categories Jim starts with. He said there are um, parables of the kingdom. Kind of they, some parables let us know how life should work and does work when God is ruling. So we sang a bunch of songs this morning about God ruling and God being king. Well, how should life work? Does life, does life work if God's ruling? What are parables that really speak to that? In fact, there are lots of parables that begin with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God is like, they would be kingdom parables. But then there are salvation parables, parables that help us understand how to enter the kingdom, how to take on Jesus as king and savior and redeemer. How does that work? Well, some parables show you how to get through the door. Other parables are wisdom parables. They kind of tell you how to live in sync with God's design of the universe. And so here's how you live and you should be living. Since God created everything, he knows how life should work. And some of the parables say, so live like this. That's how God wants things to go. There are also parables of uh, judgment. You know, there are consequences for thoughts we have, consequences for beliefs we hold, consequences for actions and words. And some parables say, you know what? If you live like this and continue to live like that, this is the consequence that comes. There are parables of judgment or parables of consequence. You continue to go a certain direction, here's the destination of that road. So different categories. What we're gonna do in this series, we're gonna try to take a couple of parables from each of those categories to help us understand what God is to say about kingdom stuff, what God is to say about salvation, how to get into the kingdom stuff, parables about wisdom, parables about judgment. How does all that kind of fit together? So just to give you an idea, that's kind of what we're gonna do. I mentioned uh, this one before, but the real key is parables are intended for us to read ourselves into the story. Parables are not meant to be really exciting stories. You learn and say, boy, isn't that really cool? I'm gonna tell somebody else that story. That's, no, no, no. 
Parables are intended for us to read ourselves into the story. I can prove that to you by reminding you of the most famous parable from the Old Testament. Yeah, there are parables in the Old Testament. The most famous of those was told by the prophet Nathan to David. Now remember, read yourself into the story. Uh, here's, how, here's how the parable goes. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And to cover up that sinful relationship, David had her husband Uriah killed. God says to Nathan, now think about that. David's kind of living pretty far off the rails, right? God says to the prophet Nathan, hey, Nathan, got a job for you. Go confront David about that junk he's been doing. Nathan says, oh, oh, uh uh-oh. So he goes, what does he do? He makes up a little story. Here's the story that Nathan tells David. Remember, David used to be a shepherd. So Nathan says, hey, David, got a story to tell you. I don't know what's going on in your little kingdom here, but uh, we've got some really good people living next to some really bad people. This urban development thing isn't working real well. They well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, there's this one really, really rich guy. In fact, he's so wealthy, he's got giant flock, he's got a giant flock of sheep, he's got ewes, he's got rams, he's got lambs, he's got all kinds, I mean, he's got sheep and goats all over the place. He lives right next to this dirt poor guy. The dirt poor guy has one lamb. So this guy has a giant flock of sheep and goats and stuff and lamb. His neighbor has one lamb. And since he only has one, he kind of cares for it, treats him well, lets it live in the house, eat out of the dog's dish. You know, they're really taking care of the little lamb. Well, anyway, the really rich guy has a friend stop by while he's on a journey. And his friend says, hey, I'd really like leg of lamb with mint jelly. Do you think you could whip that up for me? Rather than the rich guy going out into his own flock, hundreds and hundreds of sheep and stuff, rather than getting one of his own, He goes over to his neighbors, takes the family pet, brings it home, kills it, butchers it, and serves the one lamb to his guest for dinner. David is livid. David says to Nathan, where does this guy live? Bring him in here. We've got to have a talk. It's going to be more than a talk. Now you help me. What does Nathan say to David? I'll start it. You, you are the man, David. What's what's the point? David, read yourself into the story. David, you are that guy. You're so ticked off over this guy that has all these lambs and sheep and stuff who takes his day. David, that's what you've done. You didn't do it with sheep. You did it with a woman. That's what you, David, you are the man. See, read yourself into the story. And if we read ourselves into the stories, if we're courageous enough to do that, the parables will be more revealing than concealing. But if we don't take that courageous step of reading ourselves into the story, it'll just be a cute little story out there that you may wanna tell friends, but it will have no transforming impact in your life. Read yourself into the story, that's the key. Well, we're gonna look at Uh, a parable this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 14. And we're going to read a real familiar parable. It's called the parable of the great banquet. Parable of the great banquet from Luke 14, beginning in 15. If you have your Bible, you can turn there, grab your phone, go on version, use your tablet, grab a Bible out of the seat rack, Luke 14. Uh, I'm going to read it to us. Then we'll kind of go back and walk through the pieces. And the question is, 
Who do you resemble in the story? Read yourself in the story. Who reminds you of yourself? What character? So here we go, verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Not one of those invited will get a taste of the banquet. Well, that kind of raises a question. Did you notice in verse 15 that the parable is told in response to a statement that one of the guests makes to Jesus? So Jesus just doesn't out of the blue stand up and say, hey guys, let me tell you a really cool story. No, somebody asks Jesus a question. And the question is, or it's actually a statement, Jesus, blessed are those who will feast in the kingdom of heaven. Question, where would the guy have gotten the idea that God's throwing a party? Like, where would this guy have come to the conclusion that God loves celebration? Where would the guy have come up with the idea that salvation is a party? He wouldn't have gotten that idea by hanging out in church. He wouldn't have gotten that idea by hanging out with religious people. My guess is he wouldn't have gotten that idea hanging out with Pharisees. Let's face it, he probably wouldn't have gotten that idea hanging around with people like us. Where did he get the idea? Why does he think that God's throwing a party? Why does he think that living in relationship to God is like a giant celebration? You know, we often think living as God wants us to live sounds like this. Wipe that smile off your face. Toe to line. Don't step out of line. If you do something wrong, God will smash you like a bug. Do this. Don't do that. Keep your nose clean. Live in line with what God said. That's what we... But this guy somehow comes to the realization that God's throwing a party. And if we're living in sync with what God desires, we will be celebrating and moving toward a giant celebration. Where would he have gotten that idea? Oh, from the Bible. Really? Yeah. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 25, that whole chapter is kind of about this giant party God's throwing. But in Isaiah 25, here's kind of the one verse that summarizes it for us from Isaiah 25. I'll read it when I put it up there. There it is. Isaiah writes, on this mountain, so he's probably writing from Jerusalem, right? He's writing from Israel. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. In other words, 
God's preparing a party. And it's going to be the most awesome celebration ever. That's what Isaiah says. In fact, it isn't just this one place in the Old Testament. The Old Testament um, shows us that the Jewish calendar is punctuated with feasts. And the feasts were celebrations. The feasts were giant parties. In fact, often, uh, the, the people were told, collect your tithe, collect your offerings, and go to Jerusalem for the celebration. And you know what the first thing they were supposed to do when they got there with all their money? Go out and buy supplies and throw a really big party. Before you gave any money away, you collected the money, you bought party supplies, and you had a giant celebration. The feast are all over the Old Testament. And Isaiah says, oh, the feasts are pointers. The feasts are signs to, to remind us God's preparing an awesome party, the ultimate party. It'll go on and on and on. This guy gets the celebration idea from the Bible. But it isn't just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, what's the first miracle that Jesus performs? Any of you know? He turns water to wine at a party. Now, keep that Isaiah verse in mind when at the wedding of Cana, Jesus, his mom, and some followers, they're all invited to this wedding celebration. They run out of wine because of really bad planning on the part of the groom, probably. Is that really bad planning? They run out of wine. What does Jesus do? Jesus creates 60 gallons of the best wine the world has ever known. And if people knew their Bible, they would probably have thought of Isaiah 25 and they probably would have said, oh, God is preparing a feast of the best aged wine. Jesus shows up at the party and he makes the best aged wine. What does John call that miracle? A sign. He says, this is the first sign that Jesus did. It's a sign pointing to who he is and what he's come to do. Jesus comes to make a party. That's where he got the idea. Read the parables. I told you there are like 40 of them. Check them out this week. Probably in your Bible somewhere, you can find a list of all the parables. Uh, I was going to say, send me an email and I'll show you. Don't send me an email. I find a 40. You can, and I guarantee you, you're going to discover lots of feasting and partying and celebrating in the parables. When Jesus is telling stories, he's always telling stories about a big party. And now what does Jesus do at the Last Supper? The Last Supper is a party. And at the party, they're celebrating deliverance from Egypt. They're reminding themselves of God's deliverance from out of slavery. And they, they're celebrating that last Passover dinner. And what does Jesus do? Jesus transitions Passover to communion and says, I'm the one preparing the party. I'm the one preparing the ultimate feast. Passover celebrates freedom from political tyranny. I've come to bring freedom from sin and death itself. I've come to bring the party. How does the New Testament end? It ends with a party. It ends in a wedding reception and Jesus is the groom. So all over the Old Testament, we have all these parties. Isaiah tells us there's a party. Jesus' first miracle is in keeping with the party. Jesus tells lots of stories about parties and celebrations and the New Testament ends with a party. How in the world did we get so far off track 
that all of a sudden the party and the celebration things seems to be an afterthought with us rather than something kind of in the forefront of our minds. God's throwing a party. That's the history and the background to the parable. I'll let you know a little secret. We, uh, we meet, worship arts team meets every Monday, and we kind of talk about how had the service go, and we talk about what songs will be sung in the future and all that. And he, here's, what, here's what we often discuss. Those guys are a whole lot better than I am. Here's what they say. Well, we need some songs to help us think, right? Some songs help us reflect um, because you need to catch a glimpse of who God is because we'll never see ourselves accurate, you know, accurately unless we see God accurately. So we need to sing songs and be reminded of who God is. When we catch a glimpse of who God is, then we can see ourselves more clearly. So we need songs of reflection. We need songs of repentance. Oh yeah, we've kind of screwed up. But mostly we need songs of celebration because at the end of the day, it's good news we have. Let's not forget, it's good news. We don't come together as a funeral procession. We come together because God's making a party and lo and behold, he's invited us to the celebration. That's how the whole parable begins. People know God is working on making a party. But in the story Jesus tells, it's about invitations. It's about invitations. And in the first couple of verses um, of Jesus telling of the parable, you kind of catch a little bit of glimpse of some of the culture. So here's what Jesus says. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. So that's kind of, he invited many guests, past tense, he invited them. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. So he'd already invited them. Now it's time for the celebration to begin. He sends them again and says, come and get it. Now we do something like that. We now email save the date notices, right? That's kind of what the guy did. He sends save the date. The problem is they didn't have calendars the way we do. They didn't have watches the way we do. It's kind of hard to designate exactly when the party is, not quite sure. But obviously the guests that he sends the servants to and says, come and get it, they obviously said they were coming. If they said, I can't come, you wouldn't send a servant to say, come and get it. They didn't save the date. They said, hey, I can't come. I'm busy that week. They said, we'll be there. He sends the servant to say, come and get it. Now, all of a sudden, something's come up between the save the date and the actual invitation. And now they're too busy to come. Now, the people that are invited are kind of the normal people to be invited, right? You know, if you're going to have a party, you have the normal list of people you invite. I'm not saying you want to invite them, but you have to invite them. Family members, right? distant relatives, friends, you know, the kind of the normal. Well, that's the list that the guy, and this guy's a well-connected guy. In fact, if you read uh, Matthew's version of the parable in Matthew 22, you discover that Jesus says, a king is throwing a party. Oh, and it's the wedding party for his son. Well, that's kind of ratchets it up a little bit, right? The issue's still the same. The king is throwing a wedding for his son. He invites people to come, but a whole bunch of those that were invited don't show up. Huh. Well, Luke tells us why they didn't show up. So here are some of the excuses. The first guy says, uh, oh, you know what? I know I told you I'd be there. I wrote it on the calendar, but I bought a piece of property and I have to go check it out, so I can't come. And immediately you think, well, this guy must not be really good at real estate because how many of you would buy a property that you haven't yet looked at? How many of you would buy a house and then afterward go check out the neighborhood? 
You pray. Well, maybe that's what well, the guy said. Well, I've just bought a field. I need to go look at it. The other guy says, I've bought a bunch of oxen. I bought five team of oxen. I need to go try them out. I just bought this car. Now, after I own it, I'm going to test drive it. Not real bright guys back then, I guess. Um, so he bought the oxen. Then he's going to try them. He's like, oh, boy, what's going on? The third guy says, well, I got married, so I can't have any more fun. I can't come to the party, right? <laughs> Here's the common denominator. They are, at best, lame excuses. But rather than being over-the-top, idiotic excuses, I think this is the point. Jesus, you don't understand. I've got plans. I've got an agenda. Um, I've got some other things scheduled for that day. And look, I know this guy's given a party, and I know I've been invited, and you know, I'm kind of happy to be invited, but, but that party is kind of intruding on what I want to do. That party's going to cramp my agenda, my priorities. My... Huh. Did you ever notice the reality of that, though? When you receive an invitation, uh, my guess is you're honored to receive it, right? But the more you look at that invitation, the date and the times, if you're like me, sitting in the kitchen, so ooh, ooh. Boy, that's a long party, right? I mean, first you got the wedding, then you got the whole reception thing. I mean, that, that's like a whole evening shot right there, right? Then if you have a rehearsal dinner the day before, you got to drive, you got to get dressed, you got to put a tie on. Like, what the heck? Um, like, you know, if I accept this invitation, it's going to intrude on my life. And what if the weather's really nice and I want to golf that afternoon? Like, no golf if I'm going to the party. Well, I, I can tell Kim I got sick or something. She can excuse me at the party, but that's not going to go over well. Well, the point is, whenever you receive and accept an invitation, you have to say no to a whole bunch of stuff you were planning on doing or could do when you say yes to the invitation. Well, I got news for you. Jesus is making it pretty plain here. God's invitation will cramp your life a little bit. God's going to intrude on your priorities, your values, and your agenda. And so the point is not, oh, just follow Jesus and everything will be exactly the way you want. No, it won't. If you accept the invitation, it's going to cramp your life. It's going to crowd out things of your agenda. And you're going to have to say no to some things you would have said yes to if you didn't get the invitation. The point of the excuses is these guys have their life arranged. I know how this should go. I'm planning on this. I've got fields to buy. I've got oxen to hire. I've got test drives to do. I've got a marriage to live. I've got all these things. You know, God, I hear you sending me the invitation. Thanks a lot for the invitation, but um, I've got plans. And I think I'd rather go with my plans than yours. Does that sound familiar? Remember the courageous part? Read yourself into the story. Here's my hunch. Many of you in this room have accepted God's invitation. I, I assume that, I know that. But I also know this, before you accepted it, you felt the pinch of that invitation, didn't you? And you were making little assessments and some of you kind of put it off. Over the years, I've had a regular conversation with people that go something like this. Charles, you don't understand. I know what you're saying, and I know that, you know, the gospel has all these benefits, but, you know, maybe one day when I'm older, I'll kind of get my act together. But right now, I need to have fun. Right now, I've got plans. Right now, I'm running. Okay. Huh. 
How do you think uh, the people that didn't respond to the invitation are in Jesus' day, how do you think they're thinking about that now? How are you thinking about receiving or rejecting the message a million years from this morning? You see, that's kind of the point. Yet yeah, the invitation of God will intrude on your nice little life. Make no doubt about it. Just think carefully about what you're saying no to and what you're saying yes to. The excuses come. Well, then the servant comes back and says, hey, a lot of the guys you invited, they're not coming. They came up with all these excuses. And you know what I really like? I like that the master doesn't get all ticked off. Now, in Matthew, he gets a little ticked off, right? But he doesn't get ticked off in Luke. And, Jesus, and the master just says, okay, fine, you know. Go out and bring other people in. Bring in people that would never make the guest list. Bring in people that are crippled and lame and blind, people that would never get an invitation to this kind of party. You go invite them. The servant comes back and says, boy, we've invited them on, and the place is only half full. He says, go get more. Go across town. Go across the tracks. Go across the alleys. Anybody that will come, bring them in. And then he says, I want my banquet hall filled with guests. I don't want an empty chair in the whole place. And all those people that made excuses, not one of them are getting it. Hmm. Kind of interesting, right? Well, let's uh, work on a couple of lessons. You can uh, tease out your own lessons this week, and I encourage you to do that. But let me uh, mention a couple, some instruction. We've already mentioned a couple points of instruction. Uh, number one, <laughs> salvation is a celebration. It's not kind of doomsday funeral service, right? Celebration, salvation, go together. Secondly, um, we cannot supplement this party. Notice when the king sends out the servant, what does the servant say? Everything is prepared. This is not a potluck supper. Thank you, Jesus, right? It's not, hey, you guys need to bring food or nobody's eating at the party. No, no, no. Everything is prepared. The finest meat, the aged wine, and they're having desserts there, by the way. Everybody's coming and everything is prepared. You can't do anything to supplement the banquet. We've already talked about those lessons. But here's another one. God's still inviting people to this celebration of salvation. That's the obvious point. Jesus is saying, God's still inviting people. And he's inviting people that you and I would never dream of inviting. I sat down there one afternoon and made a list of some people that maybe wouldn't make my list, but they make God's list. People all across the IQ spectrum are invited to this celebration of salvation. All across. I know there aren't many smarter than you, but those people are invited. And all those people that are dumber than you, they're invited too. There is no IQ test to get in, and we should be thankful for that. And here's one even more important. You know, a, a lot of leadership stuff and corporations are talking about, EQ is more important than IQ, actually. EQ talks about emotional intelligence, people smarts, right? Well, people all across the EQ spectrum are invited too. That means people that are really nice to be around and make you feel good and people that are awkward and people say, oh, I don't want that. God's inviting him to the party and he's going to sit him next to you. People all across the IQ spectrum, the EQ spectrum, they all get invited. I probably wouldn't invite all those people, but it's not my party. And it's not your party either. People from all socioeconomic levels are invited. 
You ever notice that there are some people that we like to be around because they kind of lift us a little bit, right? And people say, oh, yeah, he hangs out with that kind of group. Wow. And there are other groups of people we don't, oh, he hangs out with people like that. People all across that spectrum are invited to. Wow. People from all different ethnic groups and all different races, all different nationalities. And that was freaking out the Jews, right? That seems to be part of the point when the, when the master says, go across the tracks, go to the back alleys, go where you would never go, go to the Gentiles. And remember, they had, the Jews had all of these different rules and regulations about who you could eat with and who you couldn't eat with. The, the, the master says, invite them all in. I'm getting rid of all the table rules. Everybody is invited that wants to come. Huh. People from all different occupations. Blue collar workers, white collar workers, no collar workers, they're all coming. People from all political persuasions are invited. Huh. People who root for different sports teams than you do. Do you believe that? I've even heard, I've not confirmed it yet, but I've even heard that a couple cat lovers are getting invited. <laughs> Can you believe it? So after I made my list, here's, here's a question that I wrote on my paper. What group of people do I find it hardest to believe that God's inviting to his party? I'm not going to tell you my list. I'm going to ask you to think of your list. What group of people do you find it hardest to believe that God's inviting? People that have different uh, sexual values than you do? People that have different beliefs than you do? Different religious persuasions than you do? The message of the king through the servants isn't clean up your acts and come to the party. The message is come to the party and the king will clean you up. Boy, how we mix that one up, right? It's come to the party. So who is the group? What, what group of people do you find it hardest that God wouldn't, hardest to believe that God wouldn't invite? Yeah, sure, shooting. God's inviting people from that group. Well, here's a second point of instruction. Look, I didn't make these up. I, they're in the story. I mean, I kind of did the wording, but they're in the story. And I... I probably wouldn't have chosen to do the parable this way, but I need to be true to what it says. So here's what the parable says. The day is coming when it will be too late to respond to the invitation. Isn't that what the parable says? I mean, at the end, Jesus clearly says, um, not one person that rejected the invitation is going to make it to the party. Now, they have an opportunity to accept up until the day the invitation is rescinded, but make no mistake, one day, it'll be too late to respond to the invitation. I don't know when that day is. I don't know when it is for you. I'm not sure when it is on a global scale. But I do know this, based on this parable and a whole bunch of other things the Bible says, a day is coming when it'll be too late to respond to the invitation. So all of that, I think I better wait. I think I'll do this. I want to enjoy life. Sow my, sow my do things, acorns first, or whatever you're sowing. Yeah, wait a minute. Um, yeah, one day is going to be too late, and tomorrow's guaranteed to nobody. You better, be a, you better be careful about playing around with that. And here's the last one, the obvious one, and it's kind of interesting, right? The guests that accept the invitation become the servants 
that issued the invitation. The guests that say, I'll be there. The guests that say, look, I know it's intrusive and I know this inv- accepting the invitation kind of cramps my style a little bit and I've got to say no to some things to show up. at the. I know all that, but I'm saying yes because nothing's better than this party. If God's throwing a party, I want to be at that party, right? Um, well, lo and behold, the guests that accept the invitation become the servants that then issue the invitation. How often have we talked about that? God always calls in, but everyone he calls in, he sends out. So the guests that say yes and are called in receive the invitation, and then they are sent with the invitation. Invited people invite people. Now, I'm not sure if you read yourself into that story, what exactly you need to sort out and apply. Maybe uh, you live as if, you know, this continuing what Jesus started things, nothing but drudgery and you know, keep a smile on your face and keep your nose clean and live in step or God's going to get you. Well, wait a minute, God's, this is a party deal, right? Maybe that's what you need to wrestle with. Or maybe you need to wrestle with, you know what? It's God's party. He gets to invite who he wants to invite and he's going to invite people like you and a lot of people very unlike you. So you need to get over that. Or maybe you need to wrestle with the part. Yeah, I've heard the invitation. I figured it out, but I figured I've got some other things to do before I accept the invitation. Hmm. Be careful with that one. Or maybe you think, yeah, I've accepted the invitation, I'm in. Yeah, but the deal's not over because invited people invite people. So I'm not sure what part of that you need to kind of read your life into pretty carefully. Uh, but I'm guessing uh, if you ask God, he'll tell you. Let's stand and pray. Father, thanks for these uh, crazy little stories that are pretty easy to remember but they can become awful painful when we read our lives into them. Lord, I want to pray for those here this morning that somehow think and live as if continuing what Jesus started is nothing but pain and agony and keep your nose clean and live in the life. Lord, show them the joy and the celebration of living accepted by you and forgiven of all of our sins. And Lord, I pray for those who have been putting off saying yes to the invitation And maybe that invitation was crystallized last Sunday, yesterday, a year ago, or maybe just this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to read ourselves into the story and wrestle with the reality that a day is coming when it'll be too late to respond. And Lord, I want to pray for those who've said yes and are experiencing some of the joy and forgiveness and acceptance. But if truth be told, they haven't invited anybody to this party for years. Lord, help us all to read ourselves into the story, to respond appropriately, and experience the transformation and change that you want in us. Thanks for this party that you're preparing. Help us to never get over the fact that you invite people like us to be there. We pray in the name of Jesus that makes that possible. Amen.